What is up, guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got one hell of a special guest today, my man, Leon Gregg. Did I say that correctly? You did. Well done. <laughs> yes, Leon Gregg, PhD, uh, currently getting his PhD. He's all the way in Scotland right now. So um, he's already had a long day. So if our listeners, if he's, you know, a little you know, not on, uh, as sharp as he said he might not be, um, cut him some slack. The man is working his ass off. He just, I don't want to say he just published a paper, but if you're not too familiar with what his work is, but we're specifically going to get into his review article uh, titled Auto Regulation in Resistance Trading addressing the inconsistencies um and for our listeners you know chris and i have kind of spoken to you know eric helms and you know john kylie um and i can't remember off the top of my head dr dr john weekly a lot of uh, velocity-based training rpe rir um so this individual leon is going to kind of bring into a different perspective of what auto regulation is um so i'm really excited to dive into this and like we kind of told you man it's just lax relax um this is his pivotal moment in his career, his first podcast, Actually, so we got can, him. Can we title you right now, Leon, and entitle you as the godfather of auto-regulation? Oh, man, that's a title that I believe Eric should probably get, but I will take it. <laughs> I've going. never met him yet, and I really want to at some point, so I hope this doesn't blow smoke into that relationship. <laughs> hey, we want all the smoke. Let him catch these. All the smoke. That's what the, the podcast here, is called, right? So let's do it. Exactly. So, Leon, my man, for all those individuals, I mean, obviously, we don't really know too much about each other, but go ahead and introduce yourself with why, you know, PhD, what did you kind of get into uh, exercise sciences, all of that nature, go ahead and cover and introduce yourself, my man. Sure, I will do a good, I'll try to do a good job of that. Um, honestly, I'd love to say I'm a, a hugely interesting character, but there's probably not all that much to say from being from a small town in Scotland. But um, yeah, I, I started off my journey by driving 50 miles, which is about an hour, um, up to Aberdeen. I started my undergraduate there, RGU in exercise science. And for me, it was a way to combine two passions. I was always curious. Like I was that guy that if there was a rainbow in the sky, everyone would just take a moment to stare at the beauty of the rainbow, right? One of the natures of the world. And the first thing I would ask is, I wonder how that works. So I always had this curious mindset, this skeptical mindset. And always loved the sciences at school. So for me, the exercise science program at that point, as a 16, 17-year-old guy, I thought, wow, let's combine two of my passions together. And as I went through that undergraduate program, um, I realized that I really wanted to go down the scientific side of things. And it's not because I'm not a people person. You can probably tell I'm very, very extroverted and I love to have conversations. Um, but I just saw it as a way to feed my curiosity. I saw it as a way to constantly learn new things and keep up to date with the field and make sure that I'm delivering the best information that I can to either students or to, to practitioners or to, to clients. And so in about third year, I won this scholarship um, and that was my first post as a research assistant. I did about six weeks of, of work there, maybe two months or so. And then I did my undergraduate uh, dissertation with my current PhD supervisor, Paul Swinton. And then the rest is history, really. Um, we hit it off one day. We started talking about auto-regulation, training theory, and our different philosophies. And he really wanted to keep me on. 
we had a really good working relationship. I wanted to be an academic and the rest just fell into place. Nice. Yeah. So one thing I kind of asked you before um, via Twitter, it was like, you know, Dr. Swinton, if I said that correctly, he's more or less a biomechanic researcher, uh, but you kind of elaborated now. He's like into everything and anything. So can you kind of go into detail of what that conversation was like to kind of get into specifically auto-regulation into this paper? I suppose um, it all started when I, to be honest, it was a selfish endeavor. So to me, as an undergraduate, he was God. He was the top of the top in, uh, like, of all of the lecturers in strength, like for the strength conditioning side of things, which was specifically more what I started to direct my attention towards was programming in general. So yeah, S and C and, and just in general, exercise programming. And um, I remember learning, as all students do, about pediatization, about bonder chart, about all of these other individuals, the godfathers of pediatization and how they propose these models. And um, I suppose the selfish endeavor for me was it never quite clicked how we would be able to write entire training cycles for four years or entire training cycles for six weeks that we wouldn't have to tweak. And that really married with my anecdotal experience as, you know, shadowing as an intern in the SNC department. Um, a coach would pretty much off the fly make an adjustment every single session. And it just never really sat right with me when you learned about individualization and all of these apparently core tenets of exercise programming and yet when you get to that level of macro planning i suppose of blueprints of programming there doesn't really seem to be that much individualization so yeah that that's where that came from and then through just discussions with him i was completely unaware um, i had never re read melsif's super training it's still sat on the shelf i've been through it once um and he proposed this idea of cybernetic periodization, which is really similar to auto-regulation, how we see it now. And yeah, from there, it basically just it spun off as, well, let's do some work on auto-regulation and figure out what it is, how we can do it well. And that, that's pretty much how it happened. So auto-regulation is not something that I would say is really taught. So for our, our listeners, what is auto-regulation? What does it mean to you? Because to me, like you said, in the strength and conditioning, it's just making changes on the fly based on the feedback that we're receiving. Um, I guess that could be a very, very broad uh, definition of it. But what is auto-regulation mean to you? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Chris. Uh, you have to be careful. It's a very fine line between labeling something as auto-regulation and then someone saying well isn't that just all programs ever and so where where now is the difference and so that was actually one of the key challenges with this paper was how do we define it in a way which we can get into in a sec after i've, I've kind of given a more broad interview but um yeah that was one of the key challenges was keeping it broad enough that it's stuck to the framework and how it was currently used and conceptualized but also not so broad that someone just said okay so what's the difference between that and just standard practice so to me, probably the easiest way to think about auto-regulation is auto-regulation is just a term that we use to describe a process where we tailor an individual's exercise program to reflect changes in their performance. 
And so really you can just think about it as a more flexible approach to exercise programming, where instead of having these predefined changes built into your training program template beforehand, so you know, a common example might be something like with a beginner's program, add five kilos or five pounds every time you come into the gym, or perhaps something a bit more strength and conditioning featured would be increases in relative load at predetermined points in time. Um, or, or say sets or anything like that, we take a bit more of a if and when needed approach and we just simply make changes as and when we need to, to reflect that individual, to reflect the training goals and to reflect their current capabilities. Um, now what that means, sorry, I'm, I'm gonna, I suppose go off on a bit of a rant now. Um, I guess what that means is that autoregulation comes in all sorts of shapes and, and sizes, right? There's so many different flavors of autoregulation that there's a whole candy store of flavors. And uh, I guess the way in which we implement it, the frequency with which we implement changes, whether, whether that's frequent or not so frequent, it also features progressions as well as regressions. But ultimately, it all boils down to it's dictated by that individual and their rate of uh, rate of progression. So specifically, right, you said there's a bunch of candy at this candy store. If we went to the auto regulation candy store, can you go ahead and kind of elaborate a little bit what type of candy there is at that auto regulation store? Well, there is chocolate caramel. There is now. OK, um, sure. So. There, 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 this is this is a difficult one to tackle. It's a bit of a beast on its own, right? Um, so, so maybe can you, you know, because you did, I thought you did a really good job of in the paper specifically saying, right, there's are types of, you know, you introduced, you know, the fitness fatigue model of, I guess this is why we would auto-regular or what we're trying to stay ahead of is that, that fatigue. Um, but, you know, can you go into, you know, within session, um, auto-regulation, uh, whether it be the different types, um, or if you want to go into, I guess, you know, at the programming level and stuff like that, kind of break it down how you did in your, your paper. Cool. Okay. Let's, let's give that a bash then. So, um, as Adam's just alluded to pretty much, we have those flavors of auto-regulation and at its broadest level, we have different time skills. And those time scales, the within session is, it's what it says on the can, it is simply just adjusting within the session. So a really common example of that in action is something like RPE or reps in reserve, where what we do is we take a measure of someone's RPE during a set, whether it be a warm up, a top set, a working set, whatever it may be. And then we adjust the load that we're gonna lift for that day or for that next set within that single session based on that measure. So within session is simply just adjusting the content of that particular session, whether it be, you know, the whole day, um, you know, the, the loads that you lift for the whole day, or whether it just be for the next set and you do it on a set by set basis. I mean, that's a whole different can of worms. But in short, it is what it says in the can. You're in a session, the session's already started, and you're taking these measurements and adjusting the load that you lift, the number of sets that you do, uh, potentially sometimes even the exercise um, that you do based on some measure. Now, the next level up from that is what we call the meta session. And this ties back into, was it you, Chris, that you said your, your mentor was pretty crazy about FNLP? Or was it you, Adam? 
That was Adam, yeah. Okay, Adam. So um, this is where something like FNLP would come in. But in short, this is where instead of already being in the session, instead of that session having already been kicked off and us making adjustments in that session, sort of in the moment, we would take a measurement at the start of the session, let's say during the warm-up or before that training has really actually begun. And then we would use that measure to dictate a host of different things. And it's really up to the coach there, whether it's you know to change the distribution of training sessions. Um, so to decide whether you're gonna do a heavy session, a light session or a medium session, that would be more reflective of something like flexible nonlinear periodization or FNLP. Or it could even be just to decide whether you're gonna do a certain exercise, whether you cut the number of sets at five today instead of six or the load that you lift. But the key difference is that rather than having that measurement occur within the session and sort of doing it a bit more on the fly in the moment, it occurs at the start of the session, before the session, and that decision is made before you start the day's training. Um, another good example, I suppose, of the um, for maybe some more of the S&C type listeners of a meta session level um, would be something like a counter movement jump. So you might take a counter movement jump as part of your warm ups or um, as maybe even just a, mon a part of your comprehensive monitoring program prior to the actual training part of your session beginning. And you could use that to update the amount of volume that someone performs on a given day. Um, and that's been done by, I think it was Claudino. Um, so they did something really similar to that. And then the last one, which is not actually really been done, I wouldn't say, um, very like explicitly at least, is where you make adjustments to an entire training cycle, potentially even an entire program based on some measurement. So to, I suppose, touch on maybe a method of auto-regulation where this might fit in is um, let's say you use something like velocity-based training and you were predicting someone's one repetition maximum on something like the back squat deadlift or one of your key compound lifts. What they might do is they might map those trends over time and they might look at those, those actual trends in one rep max and go, does that fit with what I expected to happen based on the training I'm giving this person? And if it isn't, they might decide to completely cut that training cycle. So there might have been, say, another three weeks of a, of a sort of intensification block. And they might say, no, it's time to taper because this guy's performance is rock bottom. And, and I thought it wasn't going to rock bottom for another three weeks. And so that would be the program level. You're not adjusting anything within a particular session. You're not adjusting a particular day. You're actually going ahead and changing potentially elements of an entire program. Now, specifically with... I guess, you know, all types of these, these candy in this auto-regulation store. Um, how can we, or is it, you know, is auto-regulation a superior way of training? Because I thought, you know, you, you touched very well in your conclusion, in my opinion, right? What a lot of people try to do is say, right, this is the best candy. No, this is the best candy. And you can only have this type of candy. But it seems like the best way to have, I would say, either a client buy-in or to really get the best grasp on a certain form of autoregulation is to com combine the both of them, right? Either, you know, here is an objective linear load programming, but I always want you to, you know, utilize RPE to let me know, hey, maybe very similar to how you kind of just described at a programming level, 
is this load actually intense enough or is it crushing you? And we can kind of see this progression uh, either going up that, hey, you're responding well or it's trending downward and we have to make the adjustments. And I guess my other question is just any general adjustment. And this is what I think you were trying to address in, in this paper is any general adjustment a form of auto-regulation? Uh, that is a good question. There's a proper double barrel, barrel, barrel I can talk. Uh, yeah, like a double whammy there. Um, let's go with the first one. So can, can we get superior training outcomes from all regulation? So that's a good question because there's a couple of different avenues that we can take for this. So let's probably, as we should, as evidence-based practitioners, start with what does the evidence say? So obviously there's all these different flavors of auto-regulation and that's right down to the timescale that we can implement it as well as the specific uh, methods that we can use. And when I say methods, usually I'm referring to measurement tools. So repetitions and reserve is kind of just a measurement tool, right? We're measuring something, we're asking our clients something. Um, counter movement jump, again, it's just a measurement tool. Um, and so broadly that is kind of, again, velocity-based training, measurement tool. Um, but some of these systems are a bit more comprehensive and that they also have their own sort of rules and theories and stuff, but they, they all kind of fall under this big umbrella framework. So it's quite difficult to say, but I would say that on average, yes. I think that what we see in the literature is as a minimum, there is a benefit for um, enjoyment of training. And there is probably a benefit for adherence, which is particularly useful if we have people from the general population who are, are just recreational they maybe do some competitions but they're not paid nfl players right they don't have like a structured snc program they maybe pay a coach or something like that but generally speaking it's a bit of an endeavor for fun um so what yeah what we see in literature generally speaking is that the results as far as effectiveness for particular measures, say hypertrophy, strength goes, the evidence is pretty mixed. And I think that's probably because it hasn't really been afforded a fair chance in terms of systematic investigations, but is there gonna be some, some benefit to auto-regulation? Um, yeah, of course. The reason for that is that simply by trying to embed auto-regulation in some way into your training program, it forces you to be more dialed into what the hell's going on. And that's probably where a lot of the benefit comes from, to be honest, is I've seen a lot of people before with training logs and they think that they're keeping this really awesome training log of training sessions that's going to be biblical and they'll be able to look back and pretty much predict their response and write major training sessions and be like, okay, I am now Mike to share. I am one of the best coaches in the world. And it's not, you, you look at their training log and hey, they do a good job. And I think it's great they do that in the first place. but they have maybe the exercise, the sets, the reps, and then maybe the load they did for that volume. And you're like, that's great, but I have no idea whether that was impossible for you to complete or whether that was just a walk in the park. And so it gives me no way of understanding your progression at those repetition ranges. Whereas if it's, as soon as you slap on it, okay, I felt like I had about two left in the tank there. And you do that every set, every session, or you have a velocity value there, whatever it may be, you start to get an idea of those changes. And you can say, well, I can see a pretty clear trend here, right? You did the same amount of reps, 
the same load, the same sets, but now your RPE was a six. So to me, your performances went up and you can make a more informed decision because you're more dialed in to what's going on. You can be more responsive to those uh, general fluctuations. So even from a general level, I think absolutely, there is definitely something to be said for auto regulation, but it all, all boils down to whether we can do it well or not. And I think that probably across different contexts, that's something that remains to be explored a bit more. Um, but so, yeah, does that so, sort of answer? Yeah, I think it heads in a really good direction too. And it makes me think of a question that we didn't really have thought up beforehand. Uh, you mentioned doing it well. Of course, that's very important. Uh, making sure you're doing it accurately and consistently, uh, that's going to be the best way to get you this, get you results because you're able to measure it over a period of time accurately. Yeah. However, how does one, one's training age must, you know, I guess we could say in a way, or how does one's level of um, awareness of these principles impact their ability to successfully utilize them? For example, is a beginner less likely to do this accurately? Is uh, expert uh, less likely to do it accurately because they're going to be in the mindset that I need to do anything? What are some things that go into that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, again, this is probably something that's more method specific slash context specific. So, but let, let's try and go broad first. So generally speaking, yeah, training age has to play a role, especially for something like RPE. Um, people as they advance through their training age. And I think, I think the important thing to actually just caveat here is it's not necessarily how long you've been training. It's how much experience you have doing that lift. So like I could train for years and never do a back squat. And I will probably be pretty damn rubbish at giving you my RPE on a back squat, right? I do not know what it, what it means or even feels like to hit failure on a back squat. So that, that's the first caveat. But obviously, these things are pretty correlated to training age because the older you get in your training age, the more likely you will have had to try something. Um, and the older you get, the more you realize the big rocks give you the most bang for your buck anyway. So, um, But yeah, so something like RPE that relies on our subjective decision-making or our ability to, I suppose, make that decision about our, our I, suppose, I suppose, the phenomena that we're feeling, of course, that increases with the amount of exposure that we have to it. Uh, I suppose it's a bit like anything else. It's a learning effect. So whenever we're first exposed to something, we get better at it, not because necessarily we see physiological adaptations. We just we just get better at it because most things are require a skill component. Yeah, and I things, think, oh, my bad. Go ahead, Leon. For things like velocity-based training, I think this is difficult because you can you can have rules and regulations that are underpinned by theory. So you know something like a load-velocity relationship, and you can build that for an individual. Um, where effectively what you have is for each percentage of their 1RM, you have this corresponding velocity. And the theory goes, and, and so it seems to pan out in literature, that that's pretty stable. And so if ever we, we get a velocity, we can pretty much work out what percentage that load is within a region of error, of course. Um, but it, it seems to be pretty stable. 
Um, so with that in mind, there's probably not as much of an effect with training age. It's just getting familiar with that system. Um, so you can imagine like if, if the spreadsheet told you, right, this is the velocities that you need to hit. And I suppose the spreadsheet could also automatically tell you when you're off and when you're on, um, when you're not at those numbers. It requires less skill. It requires less thought. Most of those things are already flagged up in advance. But um, yeah, I think something that requires, you know, some, something that requires our subjective input or our, our effective decision-making as an individual, yeah, that requires exposure over time for sure. And I think it's important that the exposure you mentioned is not necessarily how long you've been training for, because you could be doing bicep curls and calf raises for two years straight. That doesn't mean you're going to know how to manage a load with a back squat if you've never done it. So being aware of each individual exercising and understanding that each individual exercise this is actually, this is why I'm recapping it. Cause it's not something I've thought of, uh, my back squat, that's a whole different level of taking it to failure. When I like my life feels like I'm about to end It's on the line. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's pretty oh, darn yeah. close, but when I do bench and I go to failure, that's like nothing, like that's easy for me. So, uh, very, very important. Adam, what were you going to say? You know, I would say you just kind of caveat on what a lot of what he was saying, right? The newer the exercises, because it's a new experience, your your subjective input is probably going to be a little bit off because like just adding any load is going to be a new stimulus on you. So that repeat about effect will kick in and you'll be able to kind of accurately gauge, I would assume um, over time, again, that RPE should be better. But again, I think the more experienced you are, uh, and it also kind of has to, I would I would like to think again, the, the personality of that individual, you got an asshole For like sure. me that it's like, yo, I just <laughs> want to get weight. I just want to put it on. Everything's an eight. Um, right. It, it's probably not going to work. So you really have to put your ego aside and again, allow you. And that's what I, I really enjoy about velocity-based training. It takes that subjective out. It gives you a hard number. And I think that hard number, as you said, Leon, takes a lot of the guesswork out and you can't really lie about bar speed when you have a, a VBT uh, linear transducer on you. Um, sure. and let, I think, you know, Hackett, Hackett at all was one of those individuals that has really showed, you know, over time you, with experience specifically with a leg press and a lot of those machine movements, you get better at it. And then I, I, I don't know if it was Eric Helms or, uh, the one individual at FGCU, he also showed right on the last set, the more fatigued we are, the more accurate we get as well. And then even using yeah. like an anchoring effect as like AMRAPs plus sets and stuff like that, you really start to experience, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like when I'm going to failure. So what, sure. again, I utilizing, I, I guess, you know, all that approach, how is a, a way to get away from, as we kind of touched on before, that linear periodization model? Like, hey, we can long-term predict this is how you should respond. How can we I guess, broaden or, or give this conceptualization of either flexible nonlinear periodization or just any form of auto-regulation to the classroom? How, how, what is the next steps for that? I think the next steps is really defining. So, and this is really, I suppose, coming out of the work of my PhD. So ask me again in another couple of years and I'll probably be able to give you a bit of a an, better answer on this one. But um, it comes down to defining how we do auto-regulation well across different, Different contexts. And so that requires what I would call generation of broad principles of effective practice. And the way I think about this right now 
is that it's effectively it's it's a in the paper it's a two-step process it's kind of a three-step process the middle part's the decision making of do i adjust do i not and um I suppose this this will touch nicely on a caveat I have, which is what I, the difference between systematic autoregulation and what I call off-the-cuff autoregulation. Both are autoregulation by definition, but one is probably not that great. Um, but yeah, coming back to that, we need to figure out first, okay, well, ideally, for most contexts, the thing we're interested in here is performance, right? So we're interested in, like, there's no point training if we don't get better. I mean, there's obviously small camps of individuals where that's not the key focus, but for the majority of instances where we're thinking about something as complex, potentially as autoregulation, having all these systems in place, you got to bet that their main outcome of interest is probably performance. Um, so I guess touching on it, in a perfect world, all we would do is just measure performance more frequently and just say, all right, well, performance has changed. And so we'll change the training prescription. But the issue with that is that for a lot of things, we probably can't get maximum performance values all of the time. So something like maximum sprints, you could do that very frequently, probably, I'd imagine. And there wouldn't be that much fatigue. But something like a 1RM on all of your compound lifts that takes a ton of effort that take, for like a, a proper maximum performance for all of those three lifts that is going to leave you broken for a few days um so then the issue becomes well well now we can't really capture those frequent um, changes so what what we have to rely on are what i would call proxies of performance things measures that we think give us insight into performance um so that's things like velocity we're not actually measured in someone's 1RM, but we can glean insight into their potential 1RM. Um, and of course, there is an, a sort of, they call it an inextricable, but that just means a sort of linear relationship. Um, there's fancy words in, that you read in the articles, but um, that, that enables us to get some insight from that. So the first step is figuring out what measurements are out there and which of those actually give us any insight into performance. And the important part is that it's not a relationship with performance at a single point in time, like you see in half of these between subject correlation studies, partly because the correlation coefficient is actually somewhat dependent on the range of scores that you have on both the X and Y measurements, right? So that actually influences it somewhat, um, but also because it's just a snapshot. What we need as a coach who's doing this process over and over again over time is a relationship that's stable within an individual over time, right? Then the next important part, which I would say is, is the most important part, is, is thresholds. And these thresholds, you'll recall, see if we look back to the start of the episode, I said it was something like an, sort of like an if and when approach. So we need to decide, well, when do we adjust? Do we adjust? So we take these measurements, and we might see that that measurement has changed, but we need to decide whether that change is actually worth acting upon. And so I would say that those are the two key elements that need to be fleshed out for me in order to start understanding how do we embed this well. But it's also understanding that there doesn't need to be this dichotomy between you do traditional quote unquote programming or you don't, you do auto-regulation. Auto-regulation is there to keep you on course. 
it's there to make sure that you are giving your athlete or you're giving yourself if you're programming for yourself the stimulus you had intended to and the reason that we think that we're not doing that is because our performance has changed and so we're kind of basing all of these prescriptions on old values outdated measurements right so it doesn't have to be this dichotomy between well you either do percentage-based programming or you do auto-regulation or you do traditional programming and you don't in practice most people kind of do a bit of both right and that's probably how it works well you think of auto-regulation as a bit of a course correction and that's kind of my two cents on it oh i like that last part like you said it's a course correction hey if we're stimulating too much i guess fatigue right? We got to dial back a little bit, rather that be, like you said, sets, load, maybe we just take the day off. And again, that's the most important thing is that we're achieving our specific goal. Um, however, I want to kind of touch base, uh, not specifically performance, but more for, you know, the general population of like adherence to exercise. Um, my, I guess, quote unquote, favorite form of auto-regulation with that is like exercise selection. Let that individual select the specific exercise, whether it be a squat, bench, deadlift, whatever, like here's an, a knee or a quad dominant exercise, have at it. Um, what is your opinions on that form of autoregulation with exercise selection or more specifically, how can we use autoregulation to increase adherence specifically for resistance training? Sure. Um, so this is actually something that really hasn't had a lot of attention uh, in which I think there's there's probably broadly one study that specifically tackles that question. Um, there's a couple of the FNLP type stuff that I suppose is lumped into that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on that particular pocket of autoregulation. So, so I, I would say that when the outcome of interest is you're not so bothered about, you are bothered about performance. Of course, you, of course you want your client to improve to see progress, progression in all of their lifts or whatever it is they're doing, whether it's 5K runs, just, just whatever it is, really, of course, you want them to get better. But especially as a beginner, when you're trying to build a habit, when you're trying to go through that process of health behavior change, one of the key things is consistency, right? You're not going to see any change no matter what you do if you don't do the program. So we need to find something that allows you to do it, even if it means that theoretically, let's say we even could put a number on this, you lost 5% of the performance that you could have had. Well, you wouldn't have had it because you wouldn't have stuck to the program. So um, I, I really like that model and I would like to see more research specifically tackle that, specifically tackle that in those populations. And I think, yeah, there is a lot to be gained from that because as humans, even just from anecdotal experience, but we know from psychological theory, and I suppose I'm a little bit hesitant to say that because you've got the, the far right research extremists who say, oh, that research isn't, um, you can't replicate that research and half of the hypotheses are flawed. And, but it's pretty consistent with what we see in real life. So I'm, I'm fairly convinced that it's a thing, is autonomy. We as humans like to be in control. That's it. Now, of course, that differs from different personalities. You've got neurotic individuals and not so neurotic individuals. So of course that plays a role. But what we can do is we can provide like an A and B template. So we could say, right, what is the goal of the program? We pick our exercises, but we don't pick our exercises in the sense that we pick a specific exercise. We pick potentially a movement pattern. 
that we want. So whether that's a push, a pull, a hinge, like you said, quad dominant, potentially um, something like that. And we can program variants of that lift, A or B. That's one way that we could do it. The FNLP approach is another way that we could do it. So rather than having, um, you know, fixed sort of outline of sessions that Monday you do this, Tuesday you will do this, Wednesday you will do this, what you could do is you could have a little bit of flexibility around that and maybe put on a little bit of constraints just so some people don't run willy-nilly and do the same thing all the time, but allow them a little bit of flexibility there to take command of that program, to take ownership of that program and start to feel autonomous within that process and allow them to select based on maybe how they're feeling or something like that. So let's say you've got you know, two clients, one of them has a desk job, it's fairly stable. His work patterns are predictable or her work, work patterns are predictable. And um, we can feature straight in, okay, this is what fits your schedule. This is what you're happy with on an initial consultation. And that's great. We go ahead with the plan. Well, what happens if we have someone who has a bar job where maybe the time that they finish isn't consistent? Maybe the days that they get called into work isn't consistent. Maybe they've got a zero hour contract or something like that because they're a student. Well, then we might want to say, okay, here's, here's the nuts and bolts of the program. Here's the bread and butter. Here's the stimulus that we want. Here's the general outline. Here's the frequency that we think that we want to train with based on your availability. But let's not tie you into Monday as push day. Let's not tie you into Tuesday as this day or Wednesday as this day. Let's allow you to choose because you might come off of a 12-hour shift on the bar absolutely barred and you are absolutely not ready to do a heavy session, right? And so let's put that to the end of the week when you've had a bit more recovery and you can absolutely milk that heavy session for all that it's worth. Um, so that's another way that we could do it. So I guess my, my direct question for, you know, specifically FNLP and my, I think, critique on the, some of the literature is, yep. right, you can play that system really well. For sure. Say, hey, man, I, I, like you kind of said, if I want every day to be easy, I'm going to specifically pick out my easy days. But what the problem is, I say, is now those hard days, right? I feel like psychologically, you're already going into it a little bit more apprehensive and that intensity and intent with those sessions is already decreased just from that, that, that attitude and affect that you have towards it. What are ways, I guess, to work around it within the scientific literature with that, I guess, issue? Because I, I guess you can say, well, if you're working with an individual, well, we just won't have that those heavy days and we're just going to kind of you know, cushion them and stuff like that. But again, if we're trying to specifically focus on strength, as I think we all would kind of agree here, we have to train at those higher intensities via sure. load. I think part of it is education. So for me, if I have a client, part of my job it's, um, is to educate them so that they can go away from me at some point and do these things themselves. Ideally, maybe one day they might even be able to program better than me. Who knows? Because they know themselves better than me. But um, yeah, so I, I think part of our job as coaches and even as researchers at the forefront trying to, to better practice and come up with these evidence-based principles is to educate on why we probably shouldn't leave every heavy day to the last sort of two weeks of the month or why we shouldn't or why we need those heavy days in the first place. What's the purpose for them? Because if there is no purpose, why are they there? So clearly, if you put them in, you have to have a rationale for it. And it's about educating your client because that's also going to improve their investment in you. That's going to improve their buy-in. 
to that program. And ultimately that, that takes them along that pathway of that health behavior change from initially they weren't, they were kind of just doing exercise maybe because it was a social pressure and because they see lots of people on Instagram doing it and they, they kind of realize that there's maybe a couple of health benefits that they could get from it. They walk through the door and you need to get them from that point to a point where um, I suppose they're intrinsically motivated now. It's part of their belief system. It's something that they have to do. If, if they don't do it, they feel lost because I know that's how I feel. If I don't go to the gym, I feel like, what am I going to do with myself? So part of it's education, but specifically within research, I think that's a difficult barrier because there's the ethical side of things, which is that we, we probably can't dictate too much. Um, which is fine because I suppose it's also how it works in practice. Like we could put constraints on a program for a client, right? But if we're not there and we're not monitoring them, how do we know that they actually didn't just do the light sessions anyway? So to be honest, I think there has to be a bit of education and a bit of trust. And then within the research, I think we could probably control as much as possible by again, putting those constraints in that you do have to do one of these sessions um, you know, you have to do every single one of these sessions in this week, in this time period, you can pick the order. Um, and then you could maybe do something else like, okay, if you've done this sort of permutation of it this week, you can't do the same next week, something like that. I don't know. Um, what, yeah. What I think is really important too, is that, like you said, you educate the individual, but you're, you're also giving them the autonomy to make their, their own decision. Because like you said, we can't control if, if they just, for example, say I, I program and I do a very linear programming style for my general pop, uh, just because most people want to gain muscle. So I'll try to hit a continuum of higher rep days down to lower rep days. And as the weeks go, I'll slowly work them up to a heavier weight just to build that strength aspect. However, there's nothing stopping them from just doing the, the, the highest rep day every single day of the week. Like they ultimately have that decision unless I'm there physically holding them accountable and putting the weight and throwing it under their, their neck and say, Hey, you got to lift this. (laughs) So, uh, with all of these methods and with that in mind, what are, I I guess, what's one form of auto-regulation that you really think is the most valuable that, that also gives the autonomy, but also, um, doesn't give too much autonomy that will allow room for air. Mm. That is a good question. I, I'm always hesitant to go with there is a best, but I will, I will, I suppose I will indulge. Uh, (laughs) let's give it a bash. Drop, drop the smoke, man. Drop the smoke. uh, I, I think for me, the one that probably presents as the most accessible and the one that probably has the benefit to work over the long term. Um, and I, I think we should draw, I think we draw two separate camps here. I think the camp we have here is a focus on autonomy slash enjoyment and a focus more so on performance outcomes. I think that's probably the easiest way to divvy, divvy this one up. So for me, as far as performance goes, the one that's going to be the most accessible to the vast majority of people and is going to give them the most bang for their buck is reps and reserve or RPE, whichever one of those two terms you want to use for that system. Um, the reason for that is you literally just need a number. You need a pen and paper and a number, a spreadsheet, 
anything like that. And if you're already taking a training logbook, guess what? You just have to report one other number at the end of every single set. And there you go, you're on to a winner. Now, the other reason I think that that's beneficial is because over time, it allows us to start to incorporate other forms of autoregulation potentially as well. So things like AMRAPs are actually technically autoregulation if we adjust based on the AMRAP. That's the caveat. So if you just do an AMRAP, it's not autoregulation. It's just training. Um, you could call it monitoring as well, I suppose, um, if that was the purpose, was to get an idea of what is the maximum load you can lift at this rep range or you know, what's the maximum number of repetitions you can complete at this standardized load. But it allows us to feature that in as well. So for example, you could use AMRAPs as more of the program level or on a less frequent basis, that sort of form of autoregulation, which I think was done by Cahoon back in like 2017, maybe 2018. He had something very similar to that. It was very similar to an FNLP like type setup, but there was also AMRAPs involved. And I think they called that a plus set in the paper. Yeah, hey, I got to give a shout out to that because that paper, I was actually a subject and that was the oh, one no of way. the first. Yeah, I was, that was done in Bill Campbell's lab. So shout out to USF, both Chris and I are graduates from there so yeah they that was a really well done and i was specifically in power lifters yeah yeah it was a it was a really nice study i really enjoyed reading it it was definitely one of the better fnlp type studies that i've seen um with there only probably been about three or four actually that i would say ex explicitly fall into that camp but we won't go too much smoke on this podcast uh, no names <laughs> so <laughs> but um yeah, sorry, where, where were we again? After the, uh, oh, yeah, so the, the one performance-based one, which was the RIR, and then what about just the autonomy in general, the, the other cup? Yeah, so sorry, I'll just finish that last part off. So then we can incorporate AMRAPs, and it achieves two things. First, it acts as a way for us to calibrate ourselves against that reps and reserve scale. So we actually get exposure to what does a maximum really feel like. Um, so that acts as our anchor, it acts as our calibration point, and we can do that over and over again. But the AMRAPs also act as that second layer of autoregulation where we can really map things out and say, well, where is our actual performance? What, what, because this is, a, this is a physical measure of maximum performance. And for the, the autonomy one... Well, be, before we go to the autonomy, I have one question about the RIR. When, when considering RPE, RIR, however you want to word it, is it mm -hmm. important for all the sets to be monitored, would you say, or would it be more important just to do the last set of the day? Really, really good point. I personally think all work in sets. And the reason for that is because probably you're not gonna see, for example, you might come in the next week, right? Or two weeks after, and you might improve on one set, which might be your first work in set, but then after those, the, the next two sets, you might not improve and you might just hit the same number of reps, but there's still progress there. You still got an additional, additional one or two repetitions at say the same RPE or RIR number of reps in the tank. Um, or, you know, the converse. So maybe like the other thing is, is flipped. So I would say it's important for all working sets, um, particularly because we know most people's working sets are probably going to be somewhere between four and zero reps in reserve. Um, if they're training hard um, and sufficiently. But it probably isn't worth it for the warm-up sets because you should be so far away from failure, it would be near impossible to even record it. 
Um, besides, that's not the purpose of a warm-up set. So, yeah, I would say that every working set that you do, um, where it's at least four repetitions in reserve to maybe zero repetitions in reserve, you should be recording that. And whether you, you know, what the specific configuration doesn't matter, I don't think. So whether you keep the load the same and drop your RIR on every single set, so it's, you know, it starts at four, then it goes three, then it goes two, then it goes one and zero, that's okay. Or whether you keep that reps in reserve as a constant and you say, well, I always want to be at two reps in reserve on this set and you adjust the load to fit with that. Um, as long as we have those two pieces of the puzzle, we can see quite clearly where there's been progress. And I think that that's important for celebrating the small wins really and just keeping us happy on the very long process. Hey, so now you said we're kind of gotten into RPE and RIR. What are your opinion? Because, you know, I don't think there's really literature on it, but something that I've utilized is RPE stop and something that, mm -hmm. again, I'm drawing a major blank on the individual's um, name, but you set an RPE, you give them a load and you say, you can either go X amount of reps or you give a, a again, a load and a, a, a rep range. You say, Hey, you're going to continuously do these reps until your RPE is at an eight. So for, uh, I guess a better example, if I did a poor job of there, I give you a load at 315 on the deadlift. Yeah. You're going to do as many reps as you can for an eight. It's not quite AMRAP, but it gives you that autonomy to, I guess, kind of see that gauge of fatigue in that specific exercise at that time. What are your thoughts on future research or just utilizing RPE stops in general? Definitely. This, I think, strikes to a broader philosophical outlook on training. So um, I don't know what the, the sort of general audience is for the podcast, actually. Is it more gen pop? Is it SSC academics? Honestly, we've, we've been fortunate to have a whole host of, you know, awesome. uh, I guess, yeah, whole host of audience. So, man, just just keep it. Yeah, just keep the smoke language. coming. Keep the smoke coming, big dog. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, man. Okay, so. Um, yeah, so for, for just a brief one, obviously we, you guys will know, but we have internal training load and we have external training load. And I think this really represents the difference. So for example, I could maybe, with the RPE stop, I think what you are implicitly assuming, you're not explicitly saying it. I think automatically what you assume is the thing that matters is how close you are to failure. It doesn't matter what load you lift. It doesn't matter, you know, what percentage or, or whatever it is. The external part of that doesn't necessarily matter. The internal load, which in this case is, is how close you get to failure at that given load. That's the thing that determines the stimulus. That's the thing that matters to you. Now, that's a, that's a philosophical debate. And so it's really hard to tease out whether that is an optimal quote unquote approach. But there's certainly ways that we could tease that out in the research there's more work to be done to figure out, I suppose, um, we, we need more things like causal frameworks to understand the internal training response a bit better. What do we mean by training response? What specifically, and, and you know, um, Franco has done quite a lot of good work on this recently and um, individuals like Aaron Coots and stuff, uh, individuals like that, they've done some really nice work recently. Uh, I think, oh, I could draw a blank here, but I think it's like Annie Jeffries she put out a really nice paper that I can send on to you guys, um, which is this conceptual framework. Um, so more work like that probably needs to be done first um, with, you know, what do we mean by internal training load? What are good proxies of internal training loads? What, like, how do we measure that? Um, and I think that ultimately would decide whether 
an RPE stop with everything else just completely emergent and all over the shop. Like whatever you do is what you do as long as you get this RPE eight. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, I think that for me is the big difference there is the is the underpinning philosophy whether you're explicit about it in your own head or not that i think is the implicit assumption um you know so another way to reframe that entire conversation is what do you think you know the stimulus is how do you define stimulus from resistance training what do you think it is is it that it's the percentage repetition maximum and the number of reps you do or does it only matter that you do 15 reps with two shy of failure and I suppose it comes back round to the majority of people in the auto-regulation camp probably fall a little bit more on the side of it's probably that it's the internal load. At least it plays a big role on it. And the reason I say that is because when we think about a lot of the velocity loss or velocity-based training and RPE things, a lot of them are using these um, measures and and kind of letting other variables just fluctuate up and down. And a lot of the research that underpins some of these auto-regulatory processes or, or methods. So, you know, some of, I suppose it's the auxiliary work, it's not directly reps and reserve work, but there's some work I think out of FAU and it goes right back to around the 1980s, I think is Shimano's work. But it's this idea that people can do a different number of repetitions for a given percentage maximum. So then you say, okay, let, let's, let's think about stimulus then. Is it that it doesn't really matter that they can do a different number of reps because they're doing the, the same relative load, right? And the same number of sets. Is that the stimulus? And then you go, well, I'm not really sure because does that not mean that they're different proximities to failure? And then you begin to say, well, well I think that's important. Okay. So now is it that actually it's just the number of reps that you complete, the proximity to failure, and then something to do with the load, whether it's relative load or absolute load, again, that is a, a probably a whole different kind of worms. Those are the three things that probably determine the stimulus for the most part. So it's a roundabout way of answering that. I'm sorry, but. No, I think it was a really good way of explaining it. Uh, to summarize, though, because we are uh, running short on time, could you briefly explain what your uh, best auto regulation would be for the general population individuals? Sure. I, I, again, I suppose this comes back to the reps and reserve thing. I think that for the majority of people out there um, and for the majority of goals, I think reps and reserve is a really nice balance. I think that you know, you can, you can embed flexibility in training programs as well. And you can do that in all sorts of different ways. And it doesn't have to be in a responsive manner like auto regulation is. It doesn't have to be based on some measurement. You can just give them options. And it doesn't have to be based on some measurement or some feedback mechanism. Um, so really, I think probably the thing that gives us our most bang for a buck and, you know, pits all of the markers, so to speak, all of the, all of the big bolts of training would be reps and reserve because, yeah, it allows us to prescribe loads. It allows us to monitor things. And also, it, it yeah, I think it, it kind of hits everything, really. Yeah, so this, is, this is where I always lean. And I say velocity-based training is going to be the training in the future. Uh, for me specifically, it kind of, from how I've seen it, it throws away a lot of that junk volume. Um, and I think there is one paper 
And I want to kind of ask you specifically, what are your thoughts on a lot of these, right? If we compare fixed loading, auto regulation via RPE or velocity-based training, whatever it is, my biggest pet peeve, and that we've started to see it more and more frequently, is people are matching volume. Why are you matching volume? Because when you auto-regulate, that's the key variable that we're trying to manipulate. Yeah, it's, it's the whole point, yeah. I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head. I don't think I could say it any better. It's something that really annoyed me when I first started reading literature was at the broadest level, the mechanism behind you know, auto-regulation or at least the sort of idea behind it is that when you can push, you push. When you can't, then you pull back a little bit. Um, and obviously one of the key things is that if that person can lift more load and can perform more volume, and they're capable of that, and that's matching their goals and their level of performance. That's the whole point. You need to, you probably need to upscale what you're doing to match them and the goal of the training program. So this idea of matching volume, no, that's probably why auto-regulation was superior because you gave them more volume and that, that level of volume you gave them was actually appropriate. What you gave the other group wasn't appropriate. I think that's exactly what we've seen. Those individuals that allow the auto-regulation group to monitor their load, auto-regulation has been superior, if not non-significant. But when we've matched volume, specifically, there is one that just came out, I want to say this month, was velocity loss, 40% and 20%, right? If we do in velocity loss, obviously you're going to do less volume because, right, you're going to fatigue or your your time or your, your, your velocity is going to change a lot sooner or you're going to reach that 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 loss threshold sooner but what this in this paper did is they matched so again if you it took you four sets to complete this well now your other leg was within subject we matched volume we've gave you more sets of course you're not going to see any difference again if you're applying the same stimulus but i think us as a whole with resistance training we're starting to rely and now i'm starting to sound a little bit like dr buckner we're starting to rely on volume as being explanation of a physiological change where it's in my opinion it's just really math it's a great way to monitor right hey if you're starting to fatigue a little bit hey let's look at total volume okay this is a little too high let's back it off but i think again auto regulation kind of does that work for us okay hey if this load was a six last week and now this load is a nine this week there's something we got to do off that would you agree or how would you i guess explain that differently yeah, no, I, I think you explained it very well. I, I really don't think there's a need to expand on it. I think you hit the nail on the head, absolutely. It, it's pretty much this. I think volume definitely is a driver, um, for sure. We, especially for hypertrophy, um, we see that the volume you complete pretty consistently predicts, or not predicts, it's maybe a bit of a strong word, but... I would say it correlates. So it correlates, Yeah. right? But if the more volume you do... Is that the intensity or the effort higher? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or again, are you in my, again, like I always relate back to the pull-up, the one pull-up study. Um, ah, wow, I'm really bad with names, but it's hard. right. It was 20 and 40% velocity loss. The individuals that had 20% velocity loss, I want to say they did almost like 300 or 400 less reps, but they saw more strength in the same hypertrophy. If I can do less work and get still the same yeah. results, I'm doing that. And yeah, that allows sure. me to have other intentions, other, other else in my life, right? I can do more Pokemon training. I can play with my dog more. I can do more podcasts with crazy people and cool people like this. Um, but I think, again, when we start 
getting it really specific, we try to co- control for those variables. It takes away the whole yeah purpose it, of auto regulation. The circus just collapses. Really, I yeah. think the the issue is as well that, and, and something I suppose we're coming on to velocity loss here now is um, velocity loss. It standardizes on the surface because you're like, well, 20% is 20% because it's percentage, right? It standardizes. But the issue with that is we know that the starting velocity, and this comes from just load velocity profiles, which is the whole thing back in 2010 that kicked this circus off and on the road, right? This is where everything has come from pretty much was load velocity profiles. And of course, the accessibility of things like Tendo units and linear position transducers and stuff. Um, but like the, the research really exploded from that seminal study back in 2010, which was the load velocity profile stuff. And we know from that, that even for, for a given individual as well, but let, let's not even focus on that. Let's just focus on percentages. We know that the percentage um, across like 70%, the velocity at 70% for the deadlift and for the squat and for the bench, those are very different numbers which means that 20% of that is also a very different change and a very different number. So 40% on the deadlift versus 40% in the squat, one of them you might hit failure, the other you might not. So I think we need to be careful there as well because yes, it, it standardizes to some degree, but if we go back to that conversation about proximity to failure potentially being quite important in terms of governing the stimulus, then we're not controlling for that anymore. Then we're not really being considerate because as a practitioner, I might think, well, hey, I've got a way to standardize my prescription across lifts. But I don't really, because those percentages represent something slightly different across. And then there's ways we can obviously look to adjust that and incorporate that in. But I think that's just something you need to, to be mindful of, something you need to be cognizant of when you start to go down that route. So what I think you're saying is like every velocity loss, depending on the exercise, is going to inhibit a different stimulus, correct? Not necessarily inhibit. I just think you might get something slightly different. So I suppose in reality, it would be perfect if 40% velocity loss was two reps in reserve across all lifts, right? Because that's maybe what you're looking for. You're maybe wanting them to be maybe two, three uh, reps shy of failure. But if we just say, well, this block, I'm going to program 40% velocity loss for my main lifts, some of those lifts, you might be hitting failure. Some of those lifts, you'll be quite far off. And there was a study that looked at this. I think it was maybe by someone called Beck, but the name partially escaped me, where they basically looked at velocity, because this is something I had discussions with my supervisor, because it's just kind of basic maths, actually. Um, And the whole theory around velocity-based training kind of just tells you that. Um, because even out with the exercise specific velocities, you have individual specific velocities at given percentages. Why different proximities to failure at given percentages? So that largely explains why some people can move faster. And of, of course, it's more complex. There's phenotypical differences as well. But it, on the surface, seems like it's a really great way to standardize our prescription to get the same stimulus across different lifts. But it's maybe not. Maybe it's given us something slightly different. I got it. And you can even kind of, now what my, where my mind's going from is somebody can, sometimes somebody can handle, you know, benching four days a week. And maybe on that fourth day, that velocity loss, right. You're going to probably do lower amount of reps, but again, that, that I guess the trajectory to the, the amount or the, the proximity of failure is probably there. Uh, but 
yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I think, you know, in my head, a little bit was, you know, velocity loss was in almost in a way kind of gauged with RPE stop, right? If I'm hopefully yeah, around exactly. that RPE six, right, I might my velocity loss should be around that 20%. If I really want to kind of push you, right? I think that RPE eight and nine is at that 40% velocity loss. And I think Dr. John Weekly actually yeah. did a study. It was like 20, 40, and 60, right? If you really want that metabolic burn, that 60% is where you're going to get that proximity. But if you want power, really strength, that 20%. Um, and I think, again, that's where really kind of getting into the literature that I've seen is, right, you can get stronger, and not really have to touch really, really high amounts of load on that. And again, I think doing that is probably best so you can stay fresher long term. And as you kind of said, stay in this game a little bit longer rather than crushing yourself with a one RM tap every four to six weeks to kind of see, hey, how are you feeling or how are we improving? Yeah. And I think I know we're maybe running slightly short in time, but I'm happy to keep talking if you guys are. Um, the. Um, I was going with that was that now that we're in the velocity-based training pocket, I think this is a really nice time to come back to the idea of doing systematic auto-regulation and this idea that we probably need thresholds to help us. So what I mean by thresholds is that I know I said at the start, caveat lector, that um, auto-regulation is a bit more if and when, and there's no real sort of predefined elements. But to do it well, what we can do is rather than having predefined time points for those changes we can have predefined thresholds that help us decide when and if we should adjust so coming back into vbt what we could do is we could set you know we've got our load velocity profile so we know that and this is just a random number off the top of my head uh 0.65 meters per second let's say corresponded to someone's for east like 0.65 let's say 65 percent right let's just say that's what it was um what we can do is we can set thresholds to decide when and if we should adjust. And the reason for that is that device has measurement error. So you're going to see some change anyway, right? So if I come in on a given day and the velocity is slightly different, I might throw myself into turmoil and say, oh no, the program's not going to plan. I need to start adjusting things. I need to go to my workload templates. I need to see what his training load was the past week. Uh, how are you feeling? What's your RPE? I, I would be killing myself, right? I don't think any strength coach would actually jump to noise that much, but it, it's about raising that awareness across the board. So what we need to do to do this systematically, particularly with things like velocity-based training, where there are measurement errors in the process, is have those thresholds. And another good example of that, to stop us just jumping to noise, so to speak, is something like the two plus two, right? That's a really simple system. And somebody might say to me, well, ah, but that's not auto-regulation. Isn't that just standard practice? No, it's not. It can actually be considered auto-regulation. Why? Well, what we're doing is we're not actually setting any time point for you to go up and load or for you to go up in sets if that's your chosen variable to progress or regress. What we're doing is a priori or before we begin that training cycle, we're saying, right, we're going to pick a load you can do for six reps, let's say the upper range is eight reps for that or 10 reps or whatever you as a coach decide is appropriate. And we set the cap and we say that rather than deciding when that load should go up, let's just say whenever you can do those repetitions plus another two, we'll add load. Now that's auto-regulation because for some people, that might be two weeks time, three weeks time. 
some people, potentially experienced lifters, if that rep range is quite large and that threshold is quite large as well, the plus two, they might not see any change at all. And that's one of the issues of auto-regulation right there is, as you can see, if we don't set appropriate thresholds, sometimes we might never change the program and that might be a problem. Yeah. And I think it's a, just goes back to, it's going to be very individualized. Like you got to, there's a lot of different methods, making sure you meet the individual based on where they're at or what's going to be best for them is going to be probably in their best interest. But with the time wrapping up, let's go ahead. uh, Let our followers, listeners, I think we only have like two listeners, maybe three now. I don't know, but (laughs) let them know where they can find you. uh, And uh, are, are you on ResearchGate? I am. Uh, just type my name in. I'm, there's not very many Leon Greggs in the world. I'm pretty sure I'll pop up. So right. also let our listeners know what, you know, future research you have in sight. Um, and, you know, obviously I think what we'll do here is tag this paper that we kind of referenced throughout this conversation in our show notes. Uh, but definitely highly, highly recommend reading it. You, do, you did a very well job. Um, of explaining, you know, all the terms of auto-regulation and how you can kind of utilize it, where it kind of stemmed from. Because honestly, I didn't know it regulated way back in the 1970s, had no idea about that. So um, learned quite a few uh, a bit and I stole a lot of the references. It gave me a lot of uh, things to read on. So I appreciate that. No worries, man. That's, uh, I'm glad that I acted as a reference piece because that's exactly what it was designed for, was for people trying to get their head around this concept jumping back and forth with papers with conflicting terms, conflicting different methods, trying to get your head around this concept as a whole was difficult. So I thought one big piece that ties everything together in as neat a package as possible at the time would be quite good. So it's good to hear that that's how it's been received. Um, Sorry, the other thing I should probably touch on is when people are reading this, because I know the paper can be quite jargon heavy. So if they're jumping into this, the quick thing to touch on is this readiness thing that appears on that FFM trace, right? That is there to A, make it more like real life, but B, it comes back to what I was talking about with those thresholds. What we need to do is we need to have this expected level of performance. And that's not the same as me predicting your specific performance on a given day, like you will lift hundred kilos. It's just me having a rough outline of how I think the training will cause you to change across the next six weeks, whether that be positive, negative, or no change at all, right? If we're programming a maintenance block, guess what? We probably shouldn't see massive drops in performance, right? Otherwise, we've done something majorly wrong. So um, then we have sort of that observed performance, and that could sometimes be measurement error. And that readiness is just that, that sort of, it's illustrated as a band of uncertainty because what we're effectively saying is that fitness and fatigue are the things that primarily govern your performance, right? Because on a given day, yes, you might not perform as well, but you haven't just suddenly lost all of your muscle mass that you accrued over the past five years. You've just had an off day, whether that's because you forgot to take the pre-workout, so you've just not got that ergogenic benefit, or whether you rolled out of bed five minutes before your lecture, didn't have time for breakfast, bolted to the lecture, absolutely gassed yourself on the way there, and then you've got heavy squats. So yeah, that's just to quickly tie that in for, for anyone who's maybe less familiar with the model and stuff. Yeah, we appreciate all of this. Let our listeners quickly know where, where we are able to find you if they want to stay up to date uh, or reach out to you for any questions or services. 
Awesome. Um, so I'm just going to quickly pull up because I have no idea what half of my taglines are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm literally doing it right now. So my Instagram is just my name, Leon Greg 46 um, My Twitter, I think, is pretty basic. I'm, I'm pretty plain Jane when it comes to social media, folks, I'm afraid. It's exactly the same, Leon Greg 46 And uh, ResearchGate is probably the next best place to find me as well. And I'm, I'm always happy to cover things that um, I maybe wasn't as on the ball with on this episode because it is almost nine o'clock here now and I'm, I'm absolutely shattered, not going to lie. Listen, Leon, um, it, it, was a, it was a pleasure. You uh, gave a lot of insightful information and uh, you also brought some things to my attention that I wasn't possibly thinking of. Adam, do you have any closing remarks? If not, go ahead, sign us off. Nah, man, I'm definitely just excited to uh, hopefully, you know, futurely, you know, collaborate or run into you while I'm at a conference because uh, this is, Definitely a topic that excites me. Um, and, you know, I see some great research coming out of your lab and hopefully my lab as well um, at the University of Tennessee with our PhD. So excited to see what you come up with. And as you said, man, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Uh, I will definitely keep you in my back pocket, big man. But Likewise, that is man. all the smoke. Oh, go ahead, my man. Likewise, man. And, and thanks again for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to yes, you guys. Yes, sir. So that was all the smoke with Leon Gregg, PhD. My man needs some sleep because he does not want to be too fatigued for his heavy squats tomorrow. So <laughs> sign out. Make sure you like, subscribe. Uh, let everyone know what you guys are thinking about, uh, any questions or how we are doing um, so we can provide you guys the best uh, podcast that we can give you with all the smoke. So appreciate you guys. We will see you until next time.